Now, this morning, I want you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to uh, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to read the first seven verses together. Uh, This is Isaiah's prophecy concerning this baby that was about to be born that would change history forever. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, and we will read through verse 7. Will you please stand in honor of the Word of God? Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice in the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunders. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. For every warrior's boot used in the battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. For to us, let's read this together. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you that you have given to us this precious gift, the gift of the Lord Jesus. This is a gift that we can never really fully grasp because it is so amazing and so beyond what our human mind can even conceive of, and yet it is something that is very, very real. And today on this particular Christmas Eve, and then as we move into Christmas Day, uh, we simply want to honor you. This is your birthday. We are here to exalt you. We are here to lift you up. And so I pray that our hearts might be encouraged as we see the marvelous way in which the coming of the Savior fulfilled every one of these prophecies that Isaiah speaks of. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Christmas is uniquely special because of Jesus Christ. When Christ is taken out of Christmas, all you have is Xmas. And Xmas is empty, it is hollow, it does not deliver. But when you spell those first six letters of Christmas, C-H-R-I-S-T, it is Christ that brings meaning and fulfillment to Christmas. Christ is the one that makes all the difference, all the difference, 
from a temporary drummed up Christmas spirit to a long lasting joy that wells up within us 365 days of the year. Christmas is all about Jesus. And throughout this month, we've been seeking to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy. He is our King. He is our Lord and He is our Master. And as we've been focusing upon Christ, we've looked at several dimensions of the Christmas story. We first of all considered the mystery of Christmas. There is a sense in which Christmas was veiled before Jesus came. And yet the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is the mystery that has now been revealed. And that revelation of Christ in coming to earth makes it possible for us to experience his presence in our lives. The mystery revealed, Paul says, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have so much to hope for because of what Christ has done in coming into our world and changing our world forever. Then we moved on to the meaning of Christmas and not only is Christ that mystery revealed, but he is the one who has spoken to us. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son who declared heir of all things. And we learned in that passage that this one who has spoken once and for all the message that God wants us to have is also the one who purifies us. And he's the one that went to the cross and laid down his life so we could experience life anew. And Christmas is meaningful because the cradle always points to the cross. Then last Sunday we looked at the, the, the messengers of Christmas, uh, God's praisers, and you'll remember they gave a glorious birth announcement. Uh, they filled the sky with this bright light and announced to all the world that a Savior, Christ the Lord, had been born. Christ is our Savior. He's the one who came to save us from our sins. He is the Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And He is our Lord. He is our King. He is the only one we are to surrender our lives to. And it's been amazing to me over these last number of weeks and months throughout our country to see many individuals who have encountered the living Jesus and have embraced Him and made Him the very center of their lives. In just a few hours, many of us are going to be with our family and friends, and uh, we're going to be uh, unwrapping our gifts. But in preparation for that, this morning I want us to look at the majesty of Christmas. And Christmas is full of majestic splendor because of who this baby really is at the very core of his being. And in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah describes exactly who this little baby is and the character that he brings because he is God. Beginning in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel, that is, God with us. 
As we continue reading in the book of Isaiah, you move into chapter 8, and in chapter 8, the prophet goes on to tell about all the darkness and the despair which had engulfed the nation of Israel because they had forsaken God, that they had not followed his pattern and his plan. They would be oppressed by their enemies. Damascus and Syria would both fall because of judgment. And in chapter 8, there is that sense that when we don't follow the guidance of the living God that we always experience pain and, and judgment. And through it all, God is seeking to draw his people back to himself. He allows this to happen to the nation because of their sin, but in that process, he is always seeking to draw them to the reality that there is light through their obedience to the Lord Jesus. And so we come to chapter 9, and we see that in the midst of all the darkness of chapter 8, that a bright light has beamed forth. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. Death, a light has dawned. Even though the people of God are experiencing the judgment of God because of their sin, Isaiah holds out to them that there is a bright future because there is someone who is going to come that is going to dispel all of that darkness and bring everlasting light and joy to the people that have been wandering around in darkness because of their sin. And so when the prophet speaks about this, he speaks about it as though it's already happened, even though it, it hasn't. This prophecy comes some 700 years before this event, this marvelous entrance of Jesus into the world. And yet Isaiah is so convinced that this is going to happen, he speaks to, it, to us as if it's in the present tense. And he says that there's going to be great rejoicing. Notice in verse 3. You have increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice in the harvest as men rejoice. Four times in the midst of this darkness, Isaiah says the people are going to be rejoicing. And there are three reasons for this rejoicing. Notice, first of all, the burden of sin would be broken. Verse 4, for as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them and the bar across their shoulders. You'll recall that the people of Israel had gone through all a series of uh, oppressive taskmasters in Egypt that uh, had oppressed them and they had been under that control for a period of time. And God delivers them and then they fall back into their wayward ways and now the Assyrians have invaded their land. And they're in darkness. And yet the promise of Isaiah is that there's going to be joy that is going to be returning to them. Notice because the, the yoke there, <clears throat> he says, the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, this will be shattered, it will be broken. And it speaks to the fact that when the Messiah comes, he will destroy. He will destroy the works of darkness, and he will deal with the sin issue. And he will do it, and Israel experience a great victory when the Messiah comes, just as Midian 
and Gideon experienced in the days of the Midianites, when the Midianites were oppressing Israel. And you'll remember that, if you go back into the book of Judges, chapter 7 and 8, the Midianites had been oppressing the people of God, and God raised up a judge by the name of Gideon, and God uh, charged him to, to uh, deliver the people from, Egypt, uh, from the Midianites. And you'll remember as you go back into that particular passage of Scripture, Judges 7 and 8, that Gideon started out with 32,000 men. They were going to go ahead and fight against the Midianites. And God said, hey, Gideon, that's that way too many men. Uh, you need to pare that down a little bit because I want the Midianites to know that it's not because of the number of Israel's army that they're going to be defeated. It's going to be because they see the power of God. And so he said to this army of 32,000, he says, any of you that are fearful, you can go back to your homes. And 22,000 went back to their homes. So now the army's down to 10,000. And then God says, you, you still have way too many. And uh, he said, now I want you to, to take the men down to the river. And he says, I want you to give them a test. And he says, those that go down to the river and lap up the water with their tongues like a dog, uh, those are the ones you need to send home, but the ones that go down and kneel down and take the water in their hand and bring it up to their mouth, those are the ones that I want you to, to, uh, to choose to lead against this battle. And so again, that 10,000 went down to 300. There were only 300. And so now, the prophet Isaiah is referring to this and he is saying that when the Messiah comes, it's going to be as massive a victory over sin, over the bondage and darkness of the enemy, as it was in the days of Midian. This is going to be a great victory, and the people are going to be rejoicing because the sin issue, the burden of sin, has been broken. And then he goes on to say the second reason that not only is the burden of sin broken, but complete peace will follow because he says, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. There won't be any need of those armaments anymore because peace will rule and peace will reign. Why? Because of Christ, the baby who will be born. And then the third reason, and this is the climatic reason, and you see this in verse 6, he says, for to us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Notice that this child is specifically also identified as a son who is given. And all the prophetic uh, prophets painted the picture that this Messiah, he would come from the seed of David, he would be coming from the tribe of David, and he would be a son of David. And you'll notice down in verse 7, it says that he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom forever and ever. And so these are the reasons why the people are rejoicing. They've been going through all of this, this judgment because of their sin, but now there is this light that dawns. And it's because of the 
anticipation of this baby that would be born. Now, these names that are prophetically given to the baby Jesus are very unique. You see, names in the ancient culture reveal the very essence of a person's character. Today, we have our first names and our surnames. Most of us, I don't think, even know the real meaning of our first name or our last name. But in the Middle East, and in that particular culture, names given to a person revealed who they were at the very core of their being. Now let me ask you, how many of you know what the meaning is of your first name? Oh, some of you do. How many of you know the meaning of your last name? Some of you do, okay. You see, last names are basically, in our culture, just identification tags that we know people by. But names in those days reveal the very essence of the person's character. And so we see these names that are given to Christ, beginning in verse 6. He says, he will be called, and these are these prophetic names, and we're going to look at each one of them very specifically here this morning. In fact, these names that are given prophetically of Christ make the birth of another false messiah totally impossible. It's totally impossible. Jesus Christ is the only one to whom we can ascribe these incredible names as they are foretold by the prophet Isaiah. First of all, you'll note he is called a wonderful counselor. A more literal translation of that would be he is a wonder of a counselor or a marvel of a counselor. It's very interesting that the root word for wonderful occurs back in Psalm 78, 11 to 12, where it's also translated wonders. They forgot the wonders he had shown them in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. Again, this refers back to Israel history where they forgot many of the incredible feats that God had done for them and they grumbled. Because they complained about God, they had to spend 40 years in the wilderness. And yet, even in that period of time, God provided a, a cloud to guide them uh, by day uh, and a fire to guide them at night. He provided water from the rock. He provided manna. He provided all these wonders for them. And so this concept of a wonder of a counselor goes back to the fact that everything God did for Israel, he did because of who he was. He is a wonder. The word wonderful also affirms the deity of Christ. In Judges chapter 13 and verse 18, when the angel of the Lord tells Manoah, the father of Samson, that his name is beyond understanding or wonderful, it speaks of the fact that that angel was in some sense representing God to Manoah, expressing everything that he needed to know about Samson. So Christ is a wonder of a counselor. He is God. He is the living God. And he can advise us as no one else can. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, we read concerning Christ, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge, the fear of the Lord. 
To Christ has been given all wisdom and knowledge and understanding and counselor. And the implication is that this wonder of a counselor doesn't need anyone to counsel him. He acts and makes decisions on his own. He never has to consult with anyone. He is answerable to no one. He is accountable to no one because this wonderful counselor is the living God. He is in a class all by himself. He's the most unique counselor known to man. Today we have all kinds of counselors. Back in the day, Gary Collins wrote a book entitled Man in Transition, and he mentioned back in the 70s and early 80s that there may be 30 to 40,000 counselors worldwide. Today that number has multiplied exponentially in the United States and Canada. We have all kinds of counselors. But Jesus, this baby that was born for us, he is a wonder of a counselor. He always had the right answer for every question that he was ever asked. Do you remember how the religious leaders would come around Jesus and try to catch him in some kind of a trap? They'd try to trick him. He always had the right answer. He is the one who is full of all knowledge. He has everything under control. He is the master <clears throat> counselor. And no matter what your problem may be today, you can come to this one who can advise you. You can come to this one who can help you through the stresses and strains that have become too great for you to handle. You may be having trouble in your family. You may be having trouble in your marriage or your kids may be giving you a difficult time. Jesus knows how to help you. He's a counselor. He can make something beautiful out of the mess that we find ourselves in many times. And because he is all-knowing, he has the answer to every problem that we have. The problem with us many times is we don't go to the one that has all the answers. We try to figure out the answers on our own and miserably fail when we have access to this one who was born, who is a wonderful counselor. Not only is he a wonder of a counselor, notice he says, Prophetically, he is the mighty God. He's not an ordinary human being. He is the God-man. He is the God who always was, who always will be, but has come into our world and put on human flesh to identify with us. He is the God-man. He is the mighty God. That, that word mighty, you could translate, he is our hero God. If you're looking for a superhero today, that superhero was born in a manger in Bethlehem. He is the mighty God. According to Isaiah 11 and verse 2, he not only has the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel resting upon him, but notice he has the spirit of power or of might. Do you realize that this God that we serve, this one who has come into our world to change everything, is more powerful than any issue that we may be facing is more powerful than any problem or difficulty we may face. In fact, as our mighty God, he fights for us. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, the Bible says, if God be for us, it really doesn't matter who's against us. Jesus put it this way in John 16, 33, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus, 
this little baby, because of his death on the cross, he's overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's triumphed over everything. And the Bible says that when we receive him, he comes into our lives. He takes up residence in us. And in 1 John 4, 4, the Bible says, greater is the one who is in us in you than he that is in the world. The babe of Bethlehem is the mighty God. Writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. You see, Christ is powerful. He can take a dead person, dead in his trespasses and sin, and make him alive in Christ. It happens because we transfer faith and ourselves to faith in what Christ has done for us. He is the mighty God. If you're looking for someone that you can hang your hook on, who will always be there to defend you and to protect you and to be a source of power for you, it is Jesus Christ, this mighty God. And then the third a title that is given to uh, this little baby that is born prophetically is that he is the everlasting father. And this third title ascribes to Christ his continuous existence. He is the father of eternity. He always was, he always will be. He's had no beginning or no end. He's existed from eternity past. He did not become God when he entered our world. He always was and is the living God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. In Isaiah 63 and verse 16, we read, You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. And because God is eternal and because Jesus Christ is God, he can give to us eternal life. Eternal life is not found through going through a bunch of catechisms or going, uh, jumping through a lot of hoops, it is recognizing that this Savior wants to be our Lord and our Master, and He and He alone can give us eternal life. Eternal life is found in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Everlasting life is something we can experience right now. It's not something out in the far distant future. It's something we can experience today if we will put our trust in the one who is and always will be from eternity past, the Father, the everlasting Father. The Bible says, when we receive him, we become children of God. We become his spiritual offspring. Now, let me be very clear here. The Bible does not teach the universal fatherhood. The universal fatherhood of God. God is the father only of those who have put their faith and their trust in the baby, the baby that was born in a manger, the baby who grew up and went to the cross and then was resurrected for us. 
He is our everlasting Father, but He is the Father to only those who have put their faith and their trust in Him. And as a Father, He looks after us. He cares for us. We can go to our Father. Many of us maybe didn't have a good relationship with our Father, but we have in Jesus Christ an everlasting Father. We can go to Him with any problem, with any issue that we're dealing with and know that he listens, know that he cares for us, know that he understands us as no one else. He's never too busy to listen to your prayer or to respond to your prayer according to his will. The greatest thing we can ever do is to get close to this everlasting Father who loves us so much. And then lastly, he says, this little baby prophetically is the Prince of Peace. You see, today we are living in a world where there is so much, so much confusion and chaos and terrorism and mass murder and war. We live in a world where peace is very, very elusive. And probably at no other time in our human history has the whole world been on edge as it is today. There's all kinds of people trying to negotiate peace accords and peace treaties. But my friend, the only way the world will ever experience peace is when they invite the Prince of Peace into their hearts and lives. Jesus is that peace. You take a look at what's happening in Ukraine. You take a look today at what's happening in the Middle East. You take a look at what's happening right here at home. All of the, 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 the corruption and all of the other things that don't seem to add up. My friend, it's the Prince of Peace that makes sense out of all the chaos that we are facing in this world. Peace does not come about because of a secession of war. Peace only can come when the cause of war is removed, namely sin. And for sin to be removed, man and God must be at peace. The songwriter put it this way, there's only one way to peace, and that is through the cross. His banner over me is love. Only by putting our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ can we experience a long-lasting peace that gives us a settled conviction that despite all the chaos around us, we have a God who is in control, who lives within us, who calms us, who leads us, who directs us, who gives us a sense of his presence. The problem today is that we want peace, but we have not looked for it in the right place. Peace is found in the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot separate peace from Christ. You can't have one without the other. We will never be able to make our peace among ourselves until, first of all, we have made our peace with the Prince, and he has taken over the controls of our lives. In John 14, 27, the Bible says, Jesus is speaking. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. 
I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is not a time for us to be fearful. This is a time for us to cast all of our cares upon this prince who has paved the way for peace. He shed his own blood. He died in our place. He was resurrected and today he stands at the Father's own right hand beckoning us to come to him. I don't know where all of you are this morning, but I do know this, that our Savior always invites us to come. He invites us to come to him just as we are. He wants us to experience his presence because he is a wonder of a counselor. There's nothing that's too hard for him. There's no problem that you face that is too difficult for him to handle. There's no situation that is outside his ability to bring counsel and healing. He's the mighty God. He has all power. The devils tremble at his power. There is nothing that Satan puts in your way that is more powerful than this mighty God who lives within us because of our personal faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes you feel like you're forgotten. Sometimes you feel that no one cares about you. My friend, this morning you have an everlasting father that cares for you. He is changeless. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He values you. He laid down his life for you. And yes, he is the prince of peace who can conquer every obstacle in our lives. Christmas is a gift that God gives. Christ came the first time as a little baby. He will come a second time. Not as a little child wrapped in strips of cloth. He will come back as a king and he will root out all the unrighteousness and he will establish a kingdom that will endure forever and ever. And he's made it possible for every single one of us to be part of that kingdom if we will put our faith and our trust not in ourselves and in our own do-goodisms, but in the one who laid down his life for us so that we could be saved. You know, most of us have spent this last month trimming our homes and our offices and buildings with Christmas decor and external trimmings. Many of us even come to the end of our Christmas preparations and we're exhausted. But Christmas is more than all the external things that we've made it. Christmas is that moment in time when we embrace Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. And when we embrace him, the darkness that is all around us is turned into light. Max Lucado, in his book entitled God Came Near, tells about a man by the name of Bob Edens, who for 51 years was blind. He could not see, he lived in a hollow world of smells and sounds. He couldn't see anything. 
it was total darkness. One day a surgeon performed surgery on his eyes and miraculously Bob Edens began to see. And when he began to see, this is what he exclaimed. I never could have dreamed that yellow was so yellow. But red is my favorite color. You see, when our eyes are open and we see Christmas for what it really is, it is Jesus. It is our King who is a wonder of a counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. When our eyes are open to the real meaning and majesty of Christmas, we will be transformed. And that's my hope for every single one of us today, that we will experience the joy of Christ's presence and his power, his, his presence in our lives. And when we do, we will have discovered how majestic Christmas really is. Let's stand together, shall we please, for closing prayer, and then we're gonna sing just a little chorus as we leave here this morning, oh come let us adore him. But before we do that, I want you all to bow your heads. And I want you to make Christmas personal today. If you haven't trimmed out your, your life with Jesus, if you haven't put your faith and trust in him, I want to encourage you to do that right now in these moments. You may be seeing all the dark side of things. Christ is the one that brings light. And so I encourage you this morning, if you've never invited Jesus into your life, to just say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you to come in. I want you to change me from the inside out. I realize that I can't save myself, I can't do enough good things, but today I'm coming to you and I'm trusting you to be my Lord and Savior. Please come in. And he'll do that. He'll come in and you'll experience the joy of Christmas in dimensions you've never ever known before. Let's take a few moments. Whatever you need to do, let's, let's do what the Spirit of God is reminding us to do today, let's surrender ourselves anew to our King. Father in heaven, we love you. You are our wonderful counselor. You are our mighty God. You are our everlasting father. And you are the prince of peace. And we pray that peace would reign in every single heart that is here this morning. And I pray for those who maybe right now are making that commitment. Help them to say with confidence, Lord Jesus, I believe 
that salvation is found in you and in no one else. And I surrender my life to you. Lord, you have done so much for us. And at this Christmas time, all we can do is come and adore you, to worship you, to love you, to surrender ourselves to you. May we leave this place adoring you and praising you for all that you are. First, in the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.